Hi everyone and welcome to MedFem's podcast on sex-related differences in the experience of autism spectrum conditions. My name is Sarah Robinson and I'm here today with Juliette Hamon-Durant. We're both medical students at the University of Melbourne and are on the committee of a student-run organisation called MedFem. MedFem is a female and non-binary collective for MD students that aims to improve the well-being of female and gender diverse medical students, doctors and the population at large by holding networking and educational events, sharing resources and advocating for change. As Sarah and I are recording this podcast in Melbourne, we'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to preface our discussion by providing some definitions of key terms we will use. Here at MedFem, we acknowledge that whilst the words gender and sex are often used interchangeably, they are different. Sex refers to biological differences such as in genitalia and genetics, whereas gender is related to a person's intrinsic identity. Furthermore, we'd like to acknowledge that sex and gender are not binary concepts and that both exist on a complex spectrum. In this podcast, we have invited Dr. Rachel Mosley, a senior lecturer in psychology and researcher in the Social, Cognitive, Clinical and Effective Neuroscience Research Group at Bournemouth University to discuss this topic with us. Dr. Mosley completed her doctoral thesis at Cambridge University, studying cognitive neuroscience at the medical Research Council's Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit. Her research centres on autism spectrum conditions, particularly around the experiences and mental health of autistic adults. We are immensely grateful that Dr. Mosley has generously volunteered her time to add professional insight to our discussion. Dr. Mosley, thanks so much for joining us. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure thing. Um, First off, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting for me. Um, So I've been working um, in autism research. How many years now? (laughs) Um, I started my PhD in 2010. Um, So I really started around um, looking around the neurobiology of autism. So understanding the brain basis for some of these differences. Um, Whereas now my research is more focused on what it's like to live as an autistic adult. Um, uh, I'm interested in in aging, in stress, uh, in mental health, particularly uh, suicidality and self-injury. Cheerful topics. That sounds like a really interesting range of themes. Um, So when discussing neurodiversity in medicine, um, it's obviously really important to use appropriate terminology that's sensitive and inclusive for everyone. So Dr. Mosley, what kind of terminology do you prefer to use and why? Sure thing. So um, I think to start with, I would probably say um, a lot, there's there's quite a bit of um, people use... uh, autism spectrum disorders, and some people use autism spectrum conditions. So I always prefer autism spectrum conditions just because it's a little less negatively balanced. Um, I would also tend to use identity first language. So by this, I mean autistic person rather than person with autism. This is a term that's, uh, this, this is a style of language that is preferred by the autistic community at least those who have responded to online studies. 
and I think the argument is really around um, if you say someone is a, is a person with something, it sounds again a bit more negative. Um, and it's also, it gives this idea that autism is like an illness, whereas it's more a way of being a different type of brain and you can't separate a person from their autism. So that's why I, I use identity first, autistic person. Um, it's also just worth me mentioning since this, since this interview um, is around uh, sex and gender, I will use the word cisgender when I'm talking specifically about women whose gender identity uh, conforms to the sex they were assigned at birth. So if, if you just say women, that could, um, that could cover both cisgender and transgender autistic women. So when I specifically say cisgender, I mean women whose gender identity matches uh, their sex assigned at birth. Thank you so much. That's a really concise way of covering a lot of very complicated topics, that's for sure. And I'm definitely interested to hear about the identity first form of referring to autistic people, because I've definitely heard it spoken both ways um, with um, people saying people with autism or autistic people. So very happy to hear you clarify and we will be able to use that ongoing. Um, so would you be able to tell us a little bit about what autism spectrum conditions are? Sure. So my best way of explaining it is really to say that they are neurodevelopmental conditions. Um, scientifically, more likely a family of neurodevelopmental conditions, which um, there are many genetic roots to autism. So they might be very slightly genetically different, but they present behaviorally quite similarly. So neurodevelopmental conditions in the sense that they are then neuro, they have a brain basis and they're developmental because um, we believe the research suggests that a person is, is born autistic. It is, um, there is a, a strong genetic component. Um, and so a person is, is born autistic and they they grow up autistic, they will become an autistic adult. Um, and autism is something that develops along with them. So they may struggle with one thing at, at one point of their life and then that, that difficulty, they'll learn to overcome it. Um, and so it's not that their autism will go away, but um, it, will look, it will look different throughout life, just in the same way as with anyone um, we struggle with different things at different points of life, exactly the same with autistic people. So they'll still be autistic. Um, but yeah, it, it just might look different uh, on the surface throughout their life. So the key features of autism spectrum conditions, um, of autism as a neurodevelopmental condition, um, are a, 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 a difficulty or a struggling with um, social relationships and communication or doing this a little bit differently to um, non-autistic people um, and also uh, a preference for routine um, people uh, call it very having very intense interests um, and liking things to be very predictable to do things in a in a routine um, doing things the same way all the time um, so preference for sameness uh, and having very intense interests so it's it's kind of a it's a it's a neurodevelopmental condition characterized by social differences or social difficulties, 
and this, um, they call it kind of a rigid, restricted pattern of behaviours and interests. Thank you so much for that really comprehensive answer. Uh, it's such an interesting point about how a person will develop and move throughout their lives and how their autism may develop with them. So they may learn to overcome certain difficulties so that their autism looks different throughout their lives. I think it really speaks to the resilience of autistic people and also to the fact that autism is very dynamic and constantly evolving for people. Um, I guess something else that we were interested in as well is whether there are differences also between different people and also different genders. And in particular, um, would you be able to talk to us about how autism spectrum conditions may look different in men and women? So this is a really interesting question and a tricky one because autism is such um, a varied condition. Um, the autistic population is so diverse. And so there's going to be huge variation uh, between autistic women and between autistic men. Um, just like just like there are sex differences between non-autistic men and women. So there will be sex differences between autistic autistic men and women. Um, and, and because things are so varied, some autistic women might seem more similar to their autistic male peers than they do to the non-autistic female population, whereas others might conform a bit more to a, a more kind of stereotypically feminine presentation. But I want to tell you a few general, general rules. Um, so as a, as a general rule, autistic women tend to differ from autistic men in the focus of their intense interests. So their interests often tend to have a more social or relational focus. So whereas men might be more engaged in, in more solitary um, kind of fact, factual things, um, women might be more likely to be engaged in literature or arts or animals or activism, a big one. Um, they might even be focused on other people. So they might have a special interest in a, in a celebrity or, um, or a, a soap, um, the relationships in a, in a soap opera or something on TV. Um, and they, it seems that they engage with their special interest in a different way um, in some cases. So whereas um, an autistic man might be more likely to engage in his special interest um, more as a solitary pursuit, autistic women might be more likely to like, get involved in activism or write letters to uh, policymakers. There's also an idea supported by some research that autistic women might be more socially motivated, that they have better on the surface, uh, expressive social skills. So it seems that when you study this, um, they have the same degree of difficulty with social understanding, but it might be that quite often they're better at hiding it. So on the surface, um, they might come across as more socially um, aware, uh, more socially skilled than autistic men. Um, this, this hiding is what we call masking or camouflage, which I'm going to come back to in a bit. Uh, there's, some, there's some idea that autistic women might, women might have better self-awareness as well. And I think one thing that's really important to be aware of when you think about autistic women, especially if you're thinking about seeing them in a clinic, is that there are these very common stereotypes that people have about autism. So for instance, the kind of isolated, a loner, a cold. Um, 
but this is so uh, so false. Um, there are so many autistic women and men indeed who are incredibly warm, funny and kind. Um, and I think this can be very confusing for the public and for professionals who don't have a, a, a very good knowledge of uh, very deep knowledge of autism. Um, these autistic people who come across these way, this way, they still have the core difficulties of social interaction and understanding. Uh, they still have the intense interests and the what they call restricted and repetitive behaviors, but they might have developed excellent coping skills to cover these up. And there's also, they have a personality as well as being autistic. So it's just um, a lot of autistic people are very sociable and very caring. So uh, very far away from being cold or unempathetic. The last thing I think that's important to say about autistic girls and women is that traditionally autistic girls are more likely to internalize their difficulties. So whereas boys might be more likely to act out, to externalize, to be loud, um, to be uh, kind of more explosive, um, women, and, women and girls have been more likely to kind of internalize their problems with anxiety, depression and, and so forth and go very quiet. So you see a high proportion of mental health issues in autism generally, but when it comes to women, often they're only identified as autistic in the course of being treated for psychiatric illnesses. And there's also quite a big issue with misdiagnoses um, where they've been mistakenly identified as having a mental illness like a personality disorder. Yeah, so when it comes to misdiagnosis, um, it's very common for autistic women, especially to, uh, to collect a whole list of diagnoses before they end up being identified as autistic. So depression and anxiety, really, really common. Um, and they're often comorbid with autism. They're, they're, they're genuine comorbidities. But I think one of the things that can be challenging is that depression and anxiety might look a little bit different in autism. And also the, the symptoms of depression, for instance, can mask autism. So for instance, if a, if a teenage girl uh, came along to, um, to the doctor and she's got quite flat effect, uh, if she seems to be moving and talking quite slowly, um, quite unemotional. These are things that could actually be her normal state. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't like the word normal, but this this could be her this could be her normal as an autistic person. And so there can be this issue where things get mislabeled. Um, common misdiagnoses that autistic women get. So personality disorder is a really common one, especially um, what was borderline personality disorder, now emotionally unstable personality disorder. Um, and this is around issues with emotion regulation, I would think, and also finding it very difficult to know who you are um, and to actually put that into words and express how you're feeling. This, uh, this, this condition called alexithymia, which is a difficulty identifying and communicating what you feel. And so feeling very un like emotionally erratic, uh, these are all things, um, having, having difficulty regulating your emotions, these are all things that can be mislabeled as borderline personality disorder, which is why you need to take a really uh, clear developmental history to see um, 
to see autism in the first few years of life before you would expect to see symptoms of uh, emotionally unstable or borderline personality disorder. I also just want to mention eating disorders. So eating disorders are a really common comorbidity in autistic people. Um, or even you could say, when you look at the population of people with, people with eating disorders, it's really common for them to actually also have autism or have a high degree of autistic traits at least. And so if a woman presents with an eating disorder or, or a girl with an eating disorder, there are overlapping similarities in behaviors. So for instance, you often see this cognitive rigidity with an eating disorder, um, which would, would come about through the processes of the eating disorder and, and through malnutrition, but could also be pre-existing if it's part of the autism. So it's a really challenging thing and it, it would be a genuine it would be a genuine comorbidity. So the person would need a diagnosis of the eating disorder and autism because uh, it makes a huge difference to how you treat them. Mm, that's incredibly interesting because for us as medical students, we're always looking to try and find the patterns in symptoms or behaviour that could aid us in providing the right support to our patients, whether that be with finding the right diagnosis or referring on to the appropriate specialist. And if we're relying on stereotypes, then we will become part of the group that misses girls who are presenting with some element of autism spectrum conditions. So your explanation of how people can be completely different from the well-known stereotypes will definitely help us to address these misconceptions and will help us in our future careers as doctors. So I've got another quite complex question for you, and I'm wondering whether you could tell us about some experiences that that might be unique to women or perhaps particularly common in women who have autism spectrum conditions. So yeah, when, when you think about experiences which are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna say first about experiences which are common for cisgender autistic women. <laughs> there are some experiences which might be unique, but I would say in terms of common experiences, I've mentioned camouflaging and masking. I would say these are not unique but these are very common phenomenon that are associated with autistic, uh, with, with autism in girls and women. So this is hiding, hiding your autism and women and girls and, and also some men and boys pour a huge deal of energy into this um, to avoid shame, to try and make friends, to try and fit in. Um, so it's an immense amount of mental energy and it really, um, it's really related with poor mental health and also suicidality, which is quite frightening. So um, camouflaging is something that helps people survive in the world in some cases, but it also has this, this high toll. So this is something that's very common um, in cisgender autistic women, but not unique. So in terms of things that are unique for this group, there would be, I think you'd have to say, experiences that are associated with being a cisgender woman generally. So life stages like menarche, um, menopause, there's some research, including some of my own that I've done, that these parts of life may be especially hard for autistic uh, women as compared to neurotypical women. So it might be that their, their autism, um, their autistic difficulties 
such as sensory uh, sensory overload might get more severe during these these stages of life. There's also issues around sexuality and sexual relationships that just might be might be more difficult for autistic girls and women to navigate. And of course, we, I'm going to talk more about this later, I think, with the interaction of gender stereotypes and autism. So these might be something that autistic women would experience, whereas autistic men would experience something different there. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I think it's just, it's so sad to hear about how there's this, you know, stigma throughout society that's causing, you know, all these autistic people to feel to feel the need to expend all this energy to sort of conform to this, you know, so-called normal state um, and that it's leading to all these mental health problems. I mean, I just find that so, so upsetting to hear about. Um, you know, something else that we were thinking about, um, do you think that autistic women are identified less readily than men? And if so, why do you think that is? It's definitely true um, in terms of pure diagnostic rates. Um, so when it comes to diagnosis, um, girls are, the ratio of, of boys diagnosed to girls um, is much larger and girls tend to be picked up later. But the reasons why are really complex because there's probably lots of things going on. Because we don't we don't know if we're detecting all the autistic girls and women out there. We can't, we can't claim to know the, the true proportion of autistic females to autistic males. So there are some genetic and biological arguments that autism may genuinely um, be more common in, in males. So that, that, is a, that is a possibility, but there's also a high likelihood that because as children, um, it's highly likely we're not picking this up because as children, the signs of autism might be much more subtle in girls. Uh, traditionally, clinicians haven't known what to look for. So for instance, uh, eye contact um, is something that a lot of autistic people struggle with. But autistic girls, uh, I mentioned with camouflage, autistic girls and women might be very good at learning social rules in a very logical way. They might even learn scripts for social interaction and they might internalize their difficulties. So all of this kind of goes undercover, gets, it gets hidden by layers of camouflage and, and also by layers of mental illness possibly as well. Um, and so this presentation is very different from our traditional ideas about autism. So the ideas put forward by Kanner and Asperger, for instance. And unfortunately, the diagnostic tests that we have were all designed on male cases. So when you do come across a little girl who's struggling, um, our traditional tests might not actually categorize her as autistic. And I think this gets only more difficult with age, as I was mentioning, because you get these layers of camouflage as, as children get better at hiding their difficulties and they develop these really sophisticated uh, and exhausting strategies to fit in. Um, and so it kind of in some way comes at a cost to them because, because of the, the huge effect on their mental health and it means that they aren't identified so they don't get the support. So, this is an area where we're learning a lot more 
um, about autistic girls and women. And so specific assessment tools um, and screening tools are being developed. So we're getting there, but we have a, have a difficulty in research really, because there's uh, this kind of bottleneck which complicates things. Um, if you want to study autism in, in girls or women, often what you do is with your study, you advertise for women or girls with a diagnosis of autism. So if you only uh, accept participants, female participants with a formal diagnosis, you might be only including those participants who have been picked up by those tests which were designed with men in mind. And so the people you include might be those who do conform to the more stereotypically male presentation of autism. So there are so many undiagnosed older women out there because they didn't, they didn't fit that don't fit that profile so they weren't picked up but because we don't involve them in our studies um when we look at sex differences we might not be getting the whole picture so it's really complicated it does sound extraordinarily complicated and that notion of the bottleneck is not something i've thought about before the idea that it's being reinforced through these new studies um, and the characteristics that perhaps would really help little girls to be diagnosed are still not being brought up in this new research as much as it's trying to achieve that outcome. So that's really, really interesting for me to hear about. Um, and you mentioned the number of older women who are undiagnosed and therefore haven't had any support, um, particularly with the mental health implications of using all those coping or masking strategies. So we were wondering um, for those who are identified later in life, how does that affect the way that they're able to manage their autism? This is such an important question. It's one that I really feel passionate about. So I did a study recently on this um, and the voices from my older autistic women were that having a diagnosis affects absolutely everything. Um, and it gave them a new narrative. So whereas before people felt that they blamed themselves for everything, they blamed themselves, it was their fault they were abused. Um, one participant said, I was just shit at life. Um, they, they had these amazing analogies for the narratives they used to, um, to explain their lives to themselves. So um, one person described themselves as, as they felt um, like, a, I, I don't like the word, but they would, they would use the word crazy, um, neur neurotic, broken, um, a broken horse, a Jaguar car with this amazing IQ, but all these mental health problems. So a, a Jaguar car with this, you know flashy car but with four flat tires so people feel very broken they feel they don't fit in they have all these difficulties um they are bullied or victimized and they take that all on themselves and blame themselves very often so when they get this this label this word um it's transformative. It, it brings up a lot of emotions, I think, when people first get it. There can be anger around, why wasn't this picked up earlier? It could have saved me so much suffering. There might be some, some stigma from, from you know, the, the associations attached to autism. But what it also gives them is a toolkit, I would say, 
because they can then they can then think okay so i belong to this i'm in this category i can search for resources for people in this category and there's lots of resources and strategies out there developed by and for autistic people. So if you know you're autistic, you can go and find those. You can also go and find a community. Um, so you can connect with other autistic people who, um, where you're not the odd one out, um, where people share your experiences. And so you get this new identity and through that, um, People can learn how to better manage the things they, they struggle with. And they can also develop um, much more self-compassion and really reduce the blame and the self-criticism that they, they had placed on themselves. It sounds like, um, like that diagnosis is just so powerful um, and life-changing for people, you know, not only in terms of sort of maybe changing their beliefs about themselves, but also in giving them resources and like that community that you mentioned, um, that sounds like it would be so valuable. And I think it really reinforces the importance of, um, you know, finding, finding ways to just help bridge that gap in diagnosis so that, you know, this happens less and less and to less and less women. Um, Absolutely. Mm. And going off that point you make about, you know, toolkits and resources, we were also interested in whether the sorts of therapies or interventions that are designed to help autistic people are equally effective for men and women. This is such an important question. And I think one really key problem here is that we don't know much about effective interventions for autistic people, autistic adults, I should say, especially. So the majority of autism research is focused on, um, I would say, genetics and but also early intervention. Um, there's, uh, people don't really think about autistic people as adults. Um, and so uh, we really know very little about how to adapt um, existing therapeutic protocols for autistic adults, whether they're male or female. Um, and I think one, one thing to say quite importantly about, um, if, you, if you use the word treatment, um, I would say maybe... I, I usually I usually say I would use the word interventions just because um, I suppose there's some confusion about what you're trying to accomplish. I think the the really key just thing always to remember is that you're not you're not you shouldn't be trying to remove the to remove the autism or cure the autism um, because that that's impossible and and not right. But um, but. Uh, so really what you're trying to do with interventions is um, you're trying to help people with the psychiatric conditions and difficulties that they experience as a result of living as an autistic person in this world. So with so you're helping them with depression, anxiety, eating disorders. And that's where we are right now that we know the psychological therapies need to be adapted, but we don't yet have specific information about whether adaptions need to be made for autistic women as compared with autistic men. And there's other dimensions rather than sex where adaptations might need to be made. So for instance, um, a very large proportion of autistic people have alexithymia, this difficulty with identifying their emotions. Um, and this doesn't seem to differ by sex. 
but it's nevertheless a really important thing to pick up to pick up on in therapy because it has very strong relationships with a lot of negative health outcomes including um, self-injury and and suicidality and it's also it can be a real um, barrier for change and for um, uh, for getting a bit better through therapy. Yeah, I think that once again goes back to what you were saying about delays in diagnosis where people may not realise they're autistic until they're in adulthood, meaning that they probably have been unable to access the evidence-based help that does currently exist because most of it is designed for the early developmental stages so I think that once again reinforces the importance to us of taking a thorough history and trying to identify um, young girls as soon as we can rather than thinking it's um, something that will be dealt with down the track or will be helped by someone else down the track because if we're picking up on it then we can always provide that help earlier Um, and exactly as you said not attempting to cure just hoping to um, provide avenues for people to seek what support they can and find their networks and their communities. Um, so we were wondering whether any support networks that are available for people who are on the spectrum, whether those have gender biases, perhaps that they're more developed for male, um, for autistic men. Yeah. So I think again, there's there's a lack of research in adults, but um, in younger people, in children and teenagers, um, there have been studies which suggest that uh, autistic girls can often be the odd ones out at autism support groups because activities might be designed with um, this kind of male stereotype of autism um, more in mind. So I think generally there's just a lot more known about male presentations of autism. Um, so many, many people in the public and, um, and, and in some professions as well, just know less about autism. And so the face of autism is still male, I would say. Um, people have this stereotype of rain man or um, atypical, this, this show on Netflix. And, and so this would influence how support networks are designed. Um, in support groups that are run by and for autistic people, I think these biases are less likely, but I think that we don't really have the documentation at the minute about support in adults. We don't really know how it looks like and how it should look like. Mm. Um, I just was wondering when you mentioned the depiction of Rain Man or um, Atypical on Netflix, how you feel about the depictions of autism in the media and whether they um, help or hinder the autistic community. So seeing autism in the media is good in some ways because it raises awareness. So we need people to know that autism exists. Um, and if people, if people know that autism exists, they might be more likely to pick up if their child is autistic, for instance. Um, But the difficulty with these stereotypes is they are so one dimensional. And so although they give, they they let people know that autism exists, they paint this picture, which is very male centric. um, And so it just reinforces 
all the stereotypes that people have about autism. And I suppose we, we go back to the bottleneck earlier that autistic women are not being identified and therefore people can't form, they can't form representations of them. Um, so a lot of the media stereotypes out there are just very, very stereotypically male. And therefore they just reinforce that idea that autism looks like atypical or it looks like Rain Man or it looks like Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory. Um, there's very, one of the things participants said, said in a recent study is that you just don't see autistic women in represent, you don't see them represented in media. It's becoming a bit better but still very much um, autism is, is, I think the, the representations of autism in the media are still uh, the majority are male. And yeah, it just, it just pushes less stereotypical female presentations. It pushes them further underground really. So I think that's such an interesting answer. And I think it really brings to light the idea that it's so important to raise awareness, but you know, you, we want to be raising the right kind of awareness and we want to be raising awareness that actually helps, not hinders. Um, and, you know, while it seems like there is awareness being raised about that sort of um, male-centred stereotype, um, it seems like it might actually be hindering, um, you know, young girls and young women um, in that sense. Um, and I guess, you know, sort of going off of that and in terms of how, like, perception of men and women differ in media um, and how that might affect self-perception. Do you think that gender norms and expectations can affect perception and stigma surrounding um, autism spectrum condition for either men, women, or both? Such an interesting question. Um, actually, I actually put it to the autistic community online um, because I wanted to get their take on it. And so we sort of teased it apart a bit. First off, I think everyone thought that gender norms affect everyone. So they affect uh, non-autistic men and women and they affect autistic men and women. Um, but in terms of the things that really were, um, were um, um, stood out for the autistic community were, around self-perception. So there's definitely an effect of gender norms and stereotypes. If you're thinking of girls and women, for instance, um, there's this gender stereotype that girls and women should be liking boys when they're teenagers and they should be wearing makeup and dresses and be very girly and feminine. And so if you're not conforming to that stereotype as an autistic teenager or girl or woman, um, that that can be, uh, you can perceive that as something wrong with you and therefore has this impact on your self-esteem. And there's, there's we know as, as females that there can be this huge pressure to conform and be attractive, um, to be worth something, to be valuable. Um, and so that's one thing. Um, another thing that people found was that, um, attraction and um, being um, interested romantically in another person might be quite different in autism. So it might look quite different. So we have these ideas about romance um, and love from media and books. And for an autistic person, they might not actually be attracted to other people in that way. And so again, 
they might be feeling there's something wrong with them. Um, they might not be interested in sex, but they might not be aware of concepts like asexuality. So there's a lot of confusion there, um, people doubting their own, they're not sure if they're straight or gay or, or anything, um, they're not sure. And just generally people end up being very confused about what expectations there are for men and women. Um, and this can result in them feeling even more confused and out of place and feeling more wrong, this sense of wrongness that many autistic people grow up feeling not fitting in. And so all of these things are kind of about self-perception, but they all have a knock-on in terms of stigma and the way that other people treat you. Because if you're, for instance, if you're a teenage girl and you're not wearing your makeup and fancying boys then you, you might well get bullied for instance um likewise if you're a boy and you're not fancying girls and talking about girls then you might you're not you're going to stand out so if a person is not fulfilling the typical gender role that society places them in this does open them up to another way of being different and therefore being being victimized um one thing that autistic women thinks really interesting is that there's a very strong um, gender stereotype where women are nurturers and carers. Um, and so where, where a woman might not conform to this, so say an autistic woman, if she doesn't conform to this, if she doesn't smile and um, exude this kind of caring uh, role, um, this might be especially frowned upon because of the societal um, strength of this role um, for women in society. Uh, and one person actually said that, or, that when she was in the workplace, um, men who were equally autistic would get a pass, as she said, they would get a pass on being social in the workplace, whereas she wouldn't. And she attributed this to um, the kind of dual level of expectations. So being um, neurotypical and also um, being, um, and not, not fulfilling the, uh, not fulfilling the um, gender stereotype as well, which a lot of autistic women will struggle to as, as one partic participant, one person said very astutely, um, it's kind of difficult enough to come across as non-autistic. So they wouldn't, they weren't able to learn the dialect of being female as well, if that makes sense. So being non-autistic was one mask and then fulfilling gender roles would be like another, another dialect on top of that. So if being non-autistic is like learning a language. That's a really interesting analogy. Um, the idea of having to speak these separate dialects um, and change all your behavior to fit in. And I think it's really quite heartbreaking for Jules and I to think about the lives that people live where they feel wrong or they feel out of place and they can't fit in. Um, and I suppose we would hope that our listeners, which will mostly be medical students, would um, be very non-judgmental in their approach and all that sort of thing towards um, autistic people. But I guess this is just yet another lesson to think about of all of the times that people have, um, autistic people feel 
stigmatized or um, discriminated against in our interaction with it with them we don't want to add to that or create any further trauma to what is already in many cases no doubt a very difficult life if you're trying to spend so much energy um, just to prove that you fit in so I think that's a really good lesson that I've I will take out of this so kind of coming towards the end of our interview I'm wondering if you have any parting words of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners sure I think there's so there's so much I could say but I suppose one thing I would say is just to just to remember that autistic people are as diverse as non-autistic people and so if you if you were to have a patient who disclosed that they were autistic it might be really helpful to have a really open and respectful conversation about what that means for them. So everyone's, everyone's autism will look different because it's mixed up with their personality and their circumstances. And, and so you might ask, how does that affect your life? Um, and just give them time to think and answer that. Maybe even just let, allow them to go away and think about that and, and make an appointment to come back and talk to you often people need a bit more time to process things. And so one really important thing as doctors is to make space for alternative means of communication. So people might like to write things down. They, they might like to be given things that are written down or things that might have a, 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 picture, a pictorial form. So being open to other, other modes of communication. Um, and I think yeah, based on that, really just remember that they're people first and try to avoid any assumptions about what they might be like. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, don't underestimate them and just be always be really respectful and open to hearing their interpretations of, of the world and their symptoms. Um, and I think really going on what you were saying a minute ago about just being aware that they may have had a very hard time before they've come to your office. They may have been um, a history of being victimized and being different. And so just, I suppose, expecting them to be anxious and to be uncertain probably about themselves as well. So just being ready to give them that extra layer of compassion and patience. And I suppose when it comes to autistic, to, to young girls as well, just being open to remember to be open to that as a possible diagnosis, be open to autism as a possible diagnosis, even if it doesn't quite look like, even if they make eye contact, you have to look a lot deeper um, to see the autism, but just be aware that it might be there, especially if you've got layers of things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders. Yeah, it <laughs> doesn't look the same. But um, hopefully as we get more confident about what female presentations look like, it will get easier to spot people early in life so that they can be brought up in a, in a way where they accept themselves and other people accept them. So thank you for that, for all of that advice. I mean, there's just, there's so much to take away from that. I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, I think it's, it's so important that you've kind of honed in on the point to always keep that diagnosis that diagnosis in our minds, um, you know, so that we can prevent some of the things that you were talking about earlier about how 
you know, older women who maybe get diagnosed later, you know, they feel it, it, prov it provides so much relief to them that it's such a shame that that didn't, that that didn't happen earlier, um, you know, and so much of what you've said today has just really um, made me realise personally that so many of the struggles faced by autistic people and in particular autistic women are actually caused by, you know, society's perception and society's judgment. And, you know, I think that's so disappointing, but it's also so important to kind of raise awareness. And I think, yeah, those kinds of conversations are so important. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm just, I'm so honored to be here and um, yeah, it's uh, it's such an important area. There's, there's so much, as you've identified, there's so much suffering um, when diagnoses are missed. There's so much suffering that could be prevented. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. It's been such an honour to have you here. And I can certainly say that this is um, an experience that Jules and I will look back on and think about how amazing it was to discuss it with you. You've been an incredible guest. You've taught us so much. And we feel for sure that our listeners um, will learn an immense amount just from playing this on their run or their commute or whatever it is, because this was wonderful. So thank you so much, Dr. Mosley. Oh, yeah, no, thank, thank you so much. And um, thank you ever, ever so much to anyone who listens to this. And thank you also for the, um, for the autistic community who gave me their thoughts on some of these questions. We'd like to thank Dr. Mosley for generously volunteering her time to join us today to discuss this important topic. Hearing professional insights from such a well-respected and highly qualified researcher is invaluable for us as students starting out on our medical careers. To our listeners, we hope today's podcast has been helpful and feel free to reach out to MedFem to discuss the podcast further if you so wish. Have a great day, everyone.